Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. If you don't know, tonight is the finale of the book of Ephesians. This is part three. You guys know we are on an endless journey to preach every verse in the New Testament on live stream. We've done the book of Romans every verse. We've done the book of Revelation every verse. We've done the book of Acts every verse. Now we are on our last part of the book of Ephesians tonight. It's going to be a good time. Get excited about it. Okay, get excited. Be excited about studying the Bible. I mean, imagine excitement being normal in the church now for some of you that don't know let me make something clear for you excitement is not a sin Woo! that's a revelation for some of you that never get excited about god excitement is not a sin passion is not a sin hunger for god is not a sin you can yell you can shout you can raise your hands you can run around your room you can be excited about the presence of god friend i'm excited that god has liberated me Have you been delivered? Have you been set free? There was a time where I couldn't raise my hands, where I couldn't shout, where I couldn't praise, where I had chains on my wrists. And for some of you, I'm just going to stop and say, you need to go back and remember where God brought you out of. You need to remember the time where you were in shackles and in bondage and in chains, where you couldn't shout if you wanted to. You couldn't praise if you wanted to, where you were, the Bible says, a captive to the God of this world a son of disobedience. The spirit of the devil who works in the sons of disobedience was working in your life. And Christ, full of grace, mercy, and kindness, if you don't know, here's the gospel, liberates you. The Bible says you've now been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that you are a new creature in Christ, that you are born again. So go ahead and show some of that liberty. Because like, I've been delivered, then prove it. I've been set free, then show it. God lives in me, then then. Get some passion about you. Friend, we don't have to be stale and dead. Some of you are more stale than the chips I have in the pantry that have been there for a year and a half. And God is saying you could be alive. You could be awake. You don't have to be a dusty, crusty, religious Pharisee. There's real desire. There's real passion that happens when God transforms your life. God has transformed us. So we don't need to apologize for it. It's not a sin to be passionate and excited. Is it rare in the church? Of course it is. But I'm praying and I'm believing. I'm going to keep preaching this. So if you've already heard this a bunch of times, it's all right. I'm going to keep preaching excitement and passion. I was always confused as an atheist on how the church had no passion, but the club had passion. I was like, I don't know. This is a bit sus to me. You guys have the God of the universe living in you that rose from the dead that you believed all the stuff he says he's done. Yet when I go to church, it's more like a funeral home. And when I go to the rave, it's more like a party. And I go to the, I mean, some of you, your one-year-old birthday party has more excitement than the church that you go to. And so let's rekindle the fire. Let's rekindle the flame. Let's get passionate for the things of God. Let's let that upper room fire ignite us so that we can go out and share our faith. Why would the world want this if we don't even, we're not, we have no passion about it. So let's be excited. That's, that's the point of this is to get you excited about the word of God to jump in here and go, man, the word of God is exciting. The word of God has strong truth that has 
Supernatural transforming power. Like supernaturally, your life can be transformed by the word of God if you're following along, which you should be. I mean, why aren't you? Why wouldn't you be? Don't tell anybody if you're, we won't tell anybody if you're not, but you should be. We are in the New King James Version. Make it like a Bible study format. Make it fun for your family. It's a little bit different. We do topical preachings. We do live preaching, which by the way, tomorrow night I have a live sermon coming out premiering at six o'clock. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be powerful. But we do that. We preach in churches. We preach in our studio. We do topical. We do verse by verse. We do prophetic preaching. We do Zoom deliverance, all the stuff. But tonight is that Bible study format, Book of Ephesians, last part of it. The other parts are on the channel. Paul wrote this letter during the time he was imprisoned in Rome. Paul is the author writing to the believers in Ephesus. Hence, why it's called the book of Ephesians. So we have a lot to cover, a lot to cover. So we're going to jump right into chapter five. If you have your Bible, open up to chapter five, verses one. Don't be scared. Okay. Don't be scared of the Bible. It will change you. Ephesians five, one through two. Therefore, look at this. Oh, this is strong. Let me, hold on. Let me warn you. This is going to start really strong here. Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. So I want you to notice what Paul says in verse one through two. He connects being imitators of God with being children of God. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying in the same way your children imitate you, you should also imitate God because we are his children. It is our nature to imitate the divine nature of God as children of God. One of the joys of being a parent, I have four kids. I have, an eight, uh, I have four young children, uh, eight and under. And one of the joys of having four children is watching my kids imitate me, watching my kids imitate my wife. It's a joy to see them act certain ways, whether they talk like us, whether they do certain things like we do. We're thrilled when they pick up on our good qualities. Come on, are, is, is, am I the only parent in the chat here tonight? When our kids, oh, look, it's so cute. They do exactly, they talk the way we talk. They act the way we acted as kids. And it's a joy to watch them be imitators the contrary is the worst thing is when your kids act a certain way and they copy your bad qualities how many of you are like it is so cute when my kids imitate me in, in my good qualities but the moment they imitate in your bad qualities you're like that's their mom coming out right there <laughs> that's their dad that's not me that must I, I asked my wife well, were you like that as a kid were you stubborn were you this were you but we joke about this when they imitate bad qualities it's oftentimes embarrassing and oftentimes well, the embarrassing thing is some of you still act that way. So you see your kid act a certain way and you're like, oh, I want to be so mad, but that's exactly how I act. So I have to be careful how mad I could possibly get. Our kids pick up good qualities and they imitate our bad qualities. So those are the two qualities they pick up on. And, but here's the beauty, what Paul ties us into. The beauty is, I, you probably know where I'm going, God has no bad qualities. God has nothing bad about him. That's the beauty. God is perfect in every single way. And this is why Jesus told the Pharisees, you're acting like your father, the devil. You're acting a certain way. You're acting out. We talked about this last week because you know, because you follow what your father does. You're, the attitude you have, this religious pharisaical attitude does not come from God. It comes from the devil. So your personality and your attitude is not coming from the kingdom of God. And so when I'm doing things, this is good, type one, that don't line up with God's nature, I'm acting more like a child of Satan than I am a child of God. Let me give you an example. There's a lot of people in the church that say they're children of God, but they're imitators of Satan. 
So they imitate the devil Monday through Sunday. They go to church for an hour where a pastor babysits them. They go for about 1% of their week. And then the rest of the week, they're imitators of the culture, imitators of the people they see at work, imitators of the Antichrist, imitators of the spirit of this age. And they say, well, I'm a Christian, but they look more like their father, who John says is the devil. Remember John 1, God gives us right to become his children. We're not born children of God. We give, we gain right to become children of God. Remember, he says, if you continue on acting this way, you are not of God, but you are sons of the devil. That's who your father is. And Jesus said this to the religious people. I know you're like, oh, I don't like that. Well, you got to go read your Bible. Jesus said, you act like your father who is the devil. So when, my, when I'm acting a way that my attitude doesn't match my father, it represents who my father truly is. So we need to be imitators of God. He is our father. And Paul goes, because God is love, we should also walk in love as Christ has loved us. And he takes things to the next level because he says, Christ didn't just love us, he gave himself for us. So the love of God was not this euphoric emotion where, oh, I just, God loves me, and so it is what it is, I float on a cloud. The love of God is moved to action. God says, I love you, John 3, 16, and I'm gonna prove it by dying on the cross for you. So love takes action. You don't just, I love my wife, but you sit around doing nothing all day, and you just, I love her. There's no, those, there's no love without action. Love produces action in our lives. Love produces the good works. Jesus said, not only do I love you, but I'm gonna give my life. Paul in one place says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul was so confident in his walk with God that Paul said, you can imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. But in this text, Ephesians 5.1, Paul is saying, imitate, don't imitate me here, imitate God. So if you're a new Christian and you say, Isaiah, I pray like you, I want to read, I read the Bible like you, I study like you, I sound like you, all that, praise the Lord. That's awesome. Thank you. I'm flattered. You're a baby Christian. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, if there's a leader that doesn't imitate Christ, then you should not imitate them. You should only be imitating people that imitate Christ. He's the one that we are called to follow. He's the one that we are called to look to. Everything else is meaningless in comparison. Our goal is to look like Jesus, not look like some guy down the road, not look like a famous pastor, but be imitators of Jesus. That's the goal. And, th and because of that, we have love for other people and that love emanates to others and that love was Jesus giving his life. I'm gonna go ahead I'm gonna to try to turn on my AC, guys. Let me know if this is too loud. I'm turning it on. It is just way too hot. I'm literally soaking wet. Can you guys hear that? Is it too loud? Type one in the chat if it sounds okay. Type two in the chat if it's too loud. I'm literally soaked. I can feel sweat. I know it's kind of gross. Dripping all down my whole body. So I'm gonna turn that on because I'm absolutely soaked here. So imitators, type one if it's okay. Type two if it's too loud. I'm yelling, so I don't think you're going to be able to hear it because I'm over here yelling. Okay, it's all right. So imitate Christ. Christ's love moves him to action. So our model is Christ. He's the blueprint. Jesus showed us, write this down, how to live the Christian life. The reason why the Bible says he gave up his divine privileges was because he wanted to show us, he wanted to show us that you can live this life. So Jesus was divine, but the Bible says gave up his divine privileges to show us how to live the Christian life. You, you've been called to live a life like Jesus. So any teacher or preacher that tells you, and this is popular in church, you can't do the things Jesus did. You can't live the life that Jesus has called you to live. Just kind of be like everybody else, blend in. It wasn't literal. It was, you know, Jesus just being symbolic. He doesn't really want you to live like him. He doesn't really want you to, okay, you can't hear it, praise the Lord. He doesn't really want you to walk like him. 
Run from those false teachers. I have a video on the channel called Run From This False Teaching. And that false teaching is Jesus doesn't want us to do what he did. I heard one guy preach this. He was talking about John 14 and he lit, he read the text, which says, you can do the same works and I've done and even greater. And then he said, nobody can do the works Jesus did, especially they can't do greater. After he read the text. And I'm like, what a lie from the devil that you can't imitate Christ. Being being a Christian is being a small version of Christ. So Jesus comes and shows, says, I'm modeling the Christian life. I'm the blueprint and you model your life after me. So when I look at my life, I say, who am I imitating? Whose model do you follow? Are you living like everybody else or are you working hard to live like Jesus lived? I'm so far from the life Jesus lived. That's why I need the grace of God. That's why I need the Holy Spirit. Every day I'm saying, Lord, I want to be more like you. I want to talk like you. I want to walk like you. I want to act like you. The Bible says we've been given the mind of Christ. I want the mind of Christ so that I can think and live like Christ. The Bible says don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, so we need to be renewed and transformed. Paul says Jesus' death was like a sweet fragrance to God. If the ultimate sign of love is laying down your life for somebody, which is what the Bible says, 99% of us in the chat right now will never have to lay our life down for a brother or a friend, period. We're never going to have to do that. But how hard is it then if the ultimate sign of love is laying your life down for somebody, how hard is it to just be nice to the people around you? How hard is it to just love the people around you? How hard is it to walk the, the life that God has called you to walk? If, if Jesus says, listen, I love people so much, I laid my life down for them. How much more can I go out of my way to help a brother or sister in need? How much more can I go out of my way to wash somebody's feet in a real spiritual sense to be that support to them? Now, some of you struggle to even be nice to people. And Christ goes, real love is laying your life down. If you can't even be nice to somebody, and some of you are just flat out mean, you know this, then how much more are we going to lay our life down? Jesus didn't deserve to die. Yet he sacrificed his life. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I give my life up. Jesus gave his life for the world. He sacrificed it. And most of us are full of excuses and unwillingness to meet anybody's needs because this is our reason. They treated me bad. They don't deserve anything good for the way that they act. So we justify our actions by saying, this is good preaching, y'all. I know you don't like it, but stay on. Well, they don't treat me right. Or while well, they don't deserve it. Or while well, they're this, they're that. But that is not imitating God. Because the question is, did the world deserve Jesus to die for them? Of course not. Did any of you in the chat deserve what God has done in your life? Of course you didn't. So imitating God says, even though they're not worthy of it, even though the world doesn't even appreciate the death of Jesus, even though people spit in my face, the act of love says, I'm still going to lay my life down. So I would challenge you, the Bible says it's easy to love those that are lovable, but what reward do you get when you love the unlovable? I dare you to start loving people that don't deserve the love that you give them. Just like we didn't deserve the love that Christ gave us, this is the act that we, this is the way that we live. This is how we follow Jesus. Ephesians 5, 3 through 5. It's about to get strong. Whoo! It's about to heat up right now. Get ready. But fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness will not even be should not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, oh, it's getting hot, nor coarse jesting or joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
So here's the contra contrast to these sins, okay? Be imitators of Christ. These attitudes or these things I just named are not things that imitators of God do. God is not unclean. So when we're unclean, we're not imitating God. Are you guys catching this? God is not a fornicator. God is not into foolish talking. God is not into filthiness. God is not into coarse joking. So as us being imitators, which is what we're talking about tonight, us being imitators of Christ, we should not be doing these things because those things imitate the devil. The devil's into uncleanliness. The devil's into coarse joking. The devil's into immorality. The devil's into fornication. And the culture doesn't see anything wrong with immorality. The culture that Paul is writing to, not only our culture, the culture that Paul is writing to does not see anything wrong with immorality. In fact, it was expected that every husband in this culture would have a mistress. Plus, Ephesus was the center of the worship of the goddess Diana, also known as Artemis, the goddess of fertility. The image of her was carved, a female form with many breasts. Literally, that was her image. And the festival of Diana included wild orgies and carousing. In other cities where Greeks were widespread like Corinth, there were temples where prostitutes called priestesses, so they called the prostitutes literally priestesses in the temple, were available, and those was considered normal. And when you'd go see the prostitute at the temple, you would give the money to the temple of these foreign gods, and that's how they would fund the temple was the money of prostitution. So the belief system that Paul is writing to did not consider, you have to get this, immorality unusual or disturbing. And certainly sexual immorality like fornication, orgies, all these things were considered normal and considered acceptable to the gods that they worship. The gods approved of them. So Paul is saying this, okay, to all of you, he's writing to these people that think there's nothing wrong with sexual immorality. And Paul is saying, this is a new way of thinking. Okay, these are new Christians. Paul says, this is a completely new way of thinking. These things that your culture says is normal, that the people you serve says is normal, this is completely wrong in God's eyes. Paul uses words like fornication, which is sex outside of the confines of marriage. Uncleanliness, which speaks of all types of sexual sin. Covetness, which is referring to desiring somebody else's body for sexual gratification. The desire to sexually gratify yourself with somebody else's body is covetousness in this context so if you find yourself telling coarse jokes living an unclean life fornicating or coveting here's what you need to do repent you need to repent you need to ask god for forgiveness and you need to turn from that sin right now now i'm i know very with the with the i know for a fact with the, very clearly that there's many of you that follow me many of you that listen you live with your girlfriend, you live with your boyfriend, and you guys are sleeping together. And listen, I love you. I appreciate you. I know many of you consider me your pastor, so I'm going to say something. You consider me your pastor. Some of you don't go to church. This is what you consider your church. You are fornicating. That's what you're doing. If you're sleeping with someone that is not your husband or your wife, sex outside of the confines of marriage, that is fornication. Now, if you're asleep, not only you for, some of you are fornicating, but you're also committing adultery, okay? But that's besides the point. If you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, and you're living together, and you're sleeping in the same bed, and you guys are doing what you already know grown-ups do, then you are fornicating. And Paul says, there will be no place for you in the kingdom of heaven. There's no inheritance. So I know it gets people mad. I know people get angry, and they unfollow, and they click off. But I would rather you be mad now, and then one day enter into heaven and be excited at me that you've made it because I told you the truth than to love me for me telling you what you want to hear, and then you end up going to hell. Fornication will lead you to hell. Covetness will lead you to hell. Uncleanliness will lead you to hell. Coarse joking, unclean jokes. Remember, 
This is not just what would Jesus do, it's do what Jesus did. Jesus has no place with coarse jesting and coarse joking. We need to live and be imitators of him, not imitators of this world. And when we spend time all, all day on TikTok, just turning our brain into, a, into mush, just scrolling next thing, next thing, we're going to imitate what we see. And when you have more, consume more content from TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, than you do the word of God, prayer, and the Holy Spirit, then you're going to imitate what you see. So you see how they act on TikTok? You're going to be imitators of that. And you're going to think it's normal. It's, it's okay now for sexual immorality to be rampant and for me to look at these things. Because what social media and sexual immorality does is it desensitizes your brain. It, it, one thing that used to be, oh man, I can't look at that. I feel convicted. I feel that pain in my stomach. After so many times of you watching those, those short dopamine videos, now it's like, oh, it's not really that big of a deal. Before, watching a girl dance in a bikini would have been convicting. I would have repented. I would have clicked off. Now you're like... Well, it's no big deal. I'll just scroll to the next video. And you think, well, I didn't watch it for eight seconds. I only watched it for four. Yet you're scrolling to the next video, letting the devil choose the next video you're going to watch. If you didn't know, if you're scrolling on TikTok or short form content, you are allowing a secular company who is of the devil. That's not like bias. That's literally what the Bible says. Decide what you're going to watch. Decide the content you're going to consume. So be very careful by allowing the culture to make you an imitator of them. To be like, well, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. Ephesians 5, 6 through 7. Paul's going to double down here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What things? Uncleanliness, fornication, coarse joking. Say, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So Paul is saying, don't be influenced by people like this. Because of these acts that they perform, God's wrath is coming upon these people. So don't be partakers in these things. So don't partake in coarse talking, fornication, lewdness, covetous, or other unclean things. Because guess what? Oh yeah, the wrath of God's coming. And when you participate and you're around it and you are like it, you're going to end up catching that wrath. When that wrath gets poured out on them, you're going to also catch the wrath of God. So don't even participate. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unevenly yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion is light with darkness? The question you ask when hanging out with unbelievers is, am I influencing them or are they influencing me? And if the answer is they're influencing me, then you shouldn't be hanging around them. That's the answer. Well, you say, well, brother, Christ ate with sinners. He ate with them, but he didn't become like them. Christ ate with them to call them to repentance, not to be like them. Show me one place in scripture where Christ ate with sinners and then became like them. Show me one place where the light of Christ was dimmed out by the culture, by the world. Christ got around people and preached the gospel. So don't be up in the club going, well, you know, Jesus ate with sinners. You're up there dancing, going crazy, not doing anything. You've never witnessed. Now, let me ask you this, okay? Some of you say, well, brother, you know, I got to hang out with my old friends and go to the parties and I, I don't want to change too much because, you know, Christ ate with sinners. I got to be, you know, I got to be salt and salt where there needs to be flavor, light and darkness. I, I totally get it. Praise the Lord. So that's your theology. When's the last time you shared your faith when you were drinking at the bar with your friend? When's the last time you shared your faith at the house party where you had water in your beer cup, in your beer pong cup, and you were just playing with water? The answer is this. You don't share your faith. You don't witness to anybody. You don't reach anybody. They're influencing you. 
You're not influencing them. So don't come at me with this whole, well, Jesus ate with sinners, so I got to go out there and hang out with them. Go preach to them. Go invite them to eat. Go take them out to dinner. Go witness and share your faith with them. But don't be up in the party playing beer pong with water in your cup saying, well, I'm just here to influence the sinners because you're not influencing anybody because what's in them is greater than what's in you when you're living that type of lifestyle. So the Bible makes it clear. What fellowship? Now, again, go eat, go share, go talk, call them, text them, message them. You have tons of access to your old friends. But what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? The question you must ask is, I influencing them, are they influencing me? Again, Christ ate with them, but didn't become like them. Now, what he's talking about empty words is the idea that the world is deceiving us with empty words. The things that God hates are now being celebrated and glorified in our culture. The movies, the social media, the media, they're trying to turn you away from God and get you to view things the way they view it and not the way God views it. Am I preaching truth tonight? They want you to see fornication the way they see it. They want you to see lust the way they see it. They want you to see identity, hello, the way they see it. They want you to see social norms and the position of a, a husband and a wife in a marriage the way they see it. They want you to see giving birth the way they see it. In the world's eyes, giving birth doesn't matter. You know, ladies, go pursue your career. Don't worry about being fruitful and multiplying. In fact, you're looked down upon now if you're a stay-at-home mom having kids. Why? Because the world wants you to view the world, not in a biblical lens, but in a carnal lens. And so now women are looked down on for creating children. But isn't that weird that God said be fruitful and multiply? Isn't that weird that God designed women with one of the most beautiful features ever to be able to give birth to another human being? Name one thing that's more miraculous and beautiful than giving birth to a human being. And the world says, ah, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're like second class. No, you are a domestic engineer that should be praised in culture. But instead, it's like, oh, you're a stay-at-home mom. Oh, why? Again, why am I ranting on this? It all goes back to the world wanting you to see life through their lens. Now, many of you... We'll never fornicate, but you'll watch fornication on the television. You won't do witchcraft, but you'll watch witchcraft. You wouldn't commit adultery, but you'll watch somebody commit adultery. You're not going to lie, but you're entertained by lying. You wouldn't curse, but you have no problem watching and listening to other people curse. This is media filling us with empty words, empty promises, making you think, well, you know, witchcraft, not that big of a deal. I mean, it is. Oh, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to... I got to be careful here because I want to make some people mad. It's, I mean, it's just Marvel. It's just superheroes. It's not really that bad, even though most of it is rooted in occultism and witchcraft and the new age. You know, it's just Disneyland. It's not really that bad. It's just, you know, it's just sorcery. It's like, really, brother, it's innocent because it's in cartoon form. We tolerate all of these things to come into our life. Why? Because the media wants us to, to think like them, talk like them, and look like them. And they use these things to subtly come in comfortably. I'm going to show you the way the, the devil functions later and you're going to see this Ephesians 5 8 through 10 I got to go quicker because I have so much to cover tonight it's going to be a long one so stay with us we're almost at 3,000 share the broadcast for you were and then Paul's going to say this watch for you were once in darkness but now you are a light in the Lord walk as children of light for the fruit of the spirit is all goodness righteousness and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord okay I love this you were once in darkness. So don't, we're not going to say or go like, oh, those bad fornicators. Oh, those bad people watch those movies and do those things. Oh, those people are, are demons. No, 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 no. You were once in darkness so we could relate. We can reach them. We can pray for them. We can love them. We can, re we can relate to them. You were once in darkness. But now 
Somebody type, but now. You're not like that anymore, but now you are light in the Lord. You are light. You are the light of the world, the Bible says. So no longer are you in darkness, so you can't act this way. Paul says, this is how you used to be. You were in darkness, meaning you just stumbled around. Do you ever think back to your old life and you, you can't even remember when you were in darkness? Like I look back, I'm like, I was so lost. Like in a real sense, I had no direction. I was, the Bible says like people without eyes fumbling in the darkness. We were just scratching and reaching for the next thing. And my life was aimless. I had no eternal purpose. I had no direction. I was living on accident. But then all of a sudden one day you receive the light of Christ and God opened up your eyes, you were, oh, this is so good. Think about this. You were once without the knowledge of God. You had no knowledge of God at all. You had no comprehension of what God has done. You were living in gross darkness. And now God says, I've opened up your eyes. I've given you the knowledge of God. So Paul says, three things that make you children of light. Goodness, this is responding to people with love and right motives. Righteousness, that's knowing the right way to live, act, and behave, and continue to stay in right standing with God. And then thirdly, truth. This is God's truth and God's reality. Now, there's a popular saying, this is my truth. Hey, girl, share your truth. Speak your truth, brother. Speak your truth. That's your truth. No, no, no. Here's my word for you. Your truth doesn't matter. There's only one truth that matters, and that's God's truth. That's the only thing that matters. Your truth will not change anybody. Your truth will not set anybody free. Your truth has no value. The truth is that God's word alone is truth, and that's what makes you free. That's what we stand on. I'm not up here giving you my opinion. I posted a video where I was literally quoting scripture the whole time. Like, I'm not, I'm not blowing my own horn or puffing myself up. I was literally quoting scripture the whole time. Someone writes in the comments, oh, well, maybe you should study the Bible more before you get on here and give your little rant and you would know what the scripture says, all the stuff. And I responded like, uh, I literally quoted the scripture and then they apologized, said, oh, we're sorry. You know, I didn't, we didn't realize I was in the Bible. And everyone in the comments is like, dude, he's literally quoting the Bible. But the Bible is no longer truth to people. You get on here and say, oh, that's your opinion. No, it literally is in the Bible. It's not my opinion, the same works you shall do and even greater now that I go to the Father. That's what John 14 says. It's not my opinion, John 10, 38, where Jesus said, if you don't believe me, believe the miraculous signs and wonders, know that I'm the Father, the Father's in me. That's literally what the Bible says. Acts 1, 8, you're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I didn't make up, you're going to get power. That's literally what the Bible says. So when guys create these doctrines of, let's say, cessationism, which says the gifts aren't for today, that's a man-made doctrine. The Bible doesn't say that. That's your truth, not the truth. So our goal is to get the truth, to get the word of God out. This is the truth, God's reality. Ephesians 5, 11 through 14. I love this. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So we expose the works of darkness. We don't fellowship with them, okay? For it is shameful to even speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, or whatever makes manifest is, is light. If you don't know what manifest means, the Bible uses the word a lot. We talk about demons manifesting. Manifest means something that's once hidden, being brought to the light, okay? So when we say, oh, the demon manifested, it was a demon hiding in you, you didn't know it was there, and now it's made itself known through a manifestation. So we're not talking about like new age manifest. We're talking about making something manifest, which is bringing something to the light. And this is what Paul's saying, manifest by the light or whatever makes manifest is light. This is Ephesians 5, 11 through 14. Therefore, he says, this is God speaking, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. 
So Paul is saying to expose the works of darkness. We do that all the time on the channel. We're constantly exposing the new age. We're constantly exposing occultism. We're constantly exposing Satanism. We're constantly exposing the devil's plans and agendas. And then he says, it's shameful to speak of the things that they do in secret. Here's what one commentator said about this. Putting his own warnings into practice, Paul does not describe every possible sin in gruesome detail. Rather, he notes that what unbelievers hide from the rest of the world is even more depraved than what's done in the open. The approach offers important wisdom regarding how we should address sensitive matters regarding sin and the impact it has on believers. First, believers condemn certain sins without going into detail about them. For example, and I'm going to use, I'm going to spell it because I'll get flagged if I say it. R-A-P-E is a sinful action. However, it is not necessary to use vivid details when we discuss it. In fact, this can be counterproductive. The same is true of sins of sexual immorality or violence. It's sufficient to teach against the sins and these, but avoid shameful details. In more practical sense, that also means Christians don't need to investigate every detail of something in order to determine whether or not it's suitable. And guys, let me stop and say this. I made a video about he came to set the captives free. Have you seen that video? It's way back. You know about it. It's a very, very, very extremely graphic book about witchcraft and the occult and about one of the brides of Satan. I recorded three or four parts and two of the parts I recorded, I debated back and forth for several days whether I was going to release them or not. And every time I would try to release them, I felt the Holy Spirit say, don't release the video because it goes into too much gruesome detail about the occult. And I was like, well, Lord, it's truth. We're supposed to expose darkness. And But God kept saying, there's young people that watch you, Isaiah. I've given you this platform. You need to use discretion. You need to be careful what you talk about on here. Even though it's true, and these are demonic, dark things that happen, you don't need to go into gruesome detail. So guys, I deleted those videos. I did not post them. I deleted the files. I did not post them because I realized I didn't need to go into such gruesome detail. If you want to get the book, you can get the book if you're mature, but it was too intense. It was too gruesome. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, the things that they do in secret are very vile and very gruesome. We don't need to expose all the things. Okay. So let me keep reading what this guy commentator wrote. Second, Believers can speak against sin without directly personal experience in that area. It's become a common response, for example, for someone to say, you can't speak against this problem because you've never gone through it. Or, or to suggest that those who have never tried certain sins are no in position to discourage others. Okay? What is true is that those who have shared in the struggle might help others more effectively in that area. It's simply illogical to suggest that we should avoid speaking on sins that we haven't experienced. One does not need to have personal experience with murder, R-A-P-E, addiction, theft, or other issues to condone those actions. Christ was without sin, yet spoke against many sinful actions. Wow, that's a good point. Christ serves as an example to all believers to follow. Humility and grace are important. So what this commentator is saying is this. What the world does in darkness is, is worse. We shouldn't even speak about the gruesome details. We can call sin out in a general sense for what it is and certain acts, but we don't need to go into gruesome detail about what people do behind closed doors. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, so what he's saying is, how does a soldier walk through a minefield? How does someone walk through a house at night, making sure not to wake anybody up and step on a toy? How do you walk through your kids? My father, you know, I'm a dad here. So how do you walk through your kid's messy room to make sure you don't step on a Lego? You walk how? Carefully. 
So he said, you need to watch how you walk. Otherwise, you're going to get an undesirable outcome. Paul is saying, be careful. Your walk is not to be taken lightly. The Christian walk is to be taken with the utmost care and the utmost reverence. And you need to walk circumspectly. You need to inspect every step you take. Then he says, redeem the time for the days are evil. In other words, don't forfeit and waste your life doing nothing for God. Don't waste your life on social media day in and day out. Don't live random. Understand what the will of God is so that you can live a purpose-driven life. Now, some of you are in the chat right now saying, I don't know what God wants me to do. God, what do you want from my life? How am I supposed to know the will of God? And God says, how about this? Read the Bible and pray. Now, there's many of you in the chat right now. You don't read the Bible and you don't pray, yet you're mad that you don't know the will of God. God literally puts his will in a manual called the Bible, the basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what the Bible stands for. Okay, that's, there's your translation there. And you literally don't obey, live, walk out, read those instructions, and you're confused. Just give me another prophetic word. You don't need another prophetic word. You need to open up the word of God and discover the will of God in the scriptures. Now, of course, God can speak through prophecy. God can speak through visions, dreams. I love all of it. I'm, I'm charismatic, y'all. I love it. But I think we need to make sure that before we go into that, that we're opening up the scriptures and we're praying and reading. Don't get mad at God for not telling you your destiny when you never read and you never pray. Say ouch or say amen. Ephesians 5.18. Okay, I'm going to go on a little bit strong here. I know we, I know we, who are, but why are we rushing? Okay, I don't have a time limit. Let's just go. Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine. It's about to get hot in here, y'all. Which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Okay, one translation says this, don't get drunk with wine, which will ruin your life, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. So is drinking, the question is, is drinking a one-time event? Of course not. So is being filled with the Holy Spirit a one-time event? Of course it isn't. Why is Paul relating being drunk with wine than contrasting being drunk with the Spirit or being filled, I should say not drunk, being filled with the Holy Spirit? Paul is saying in the same way you guys drink and get drunk, on a daily basis every three days you can get filled continually and that's what the greek filled is with the holy spirit dissipation means a life of drunkenness or sexual immorality one commentator said this it may seem unusual and even silly that paul would contrast being filled with the holy spirit and being drunk with wine but in this day the day he's writing to the people were involved in the cult of Dion dionysus also known as bacchus the god of wine and drunken orgies so remember they're worshiping the god of wine and drunken orgies they believed that being drunk was a way to be inspired. It was only when they were drunk, they theorized that they would sense Dionysus, Dionysus's will for them and they would obey Dionysus. So Paul was saying the same way you get drunk for this God, this goddess Dionysus that you guys worship, don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the spirit of God. The word filled is a passive imperative tense, which in the Greek, it means being filled continually. It's not a one-time event in the Greek tense it is being filled continually. Let me give you my thoughts on drinking because I know you're all going to ask, what do you think about drinking? I think that alcohol is not for the Christian. Think about this. They call alcoholic drinks spirits. Spirits. I mean, do you want to be drinking something called spirit? There's only one spirit I want to consume. That's the Holy Spirit. So that's enough for me to stay away. But let me give you verses. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. You say, I'm allowed to do anything yet not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. So just because you're allowed you by law doesn't mean you should. Romans 13, 13. 
Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Proverbs 31.4. Look at this. It is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, for they will drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. So what Proverbs is saying, alcohol, period, not just, oh, it's just one drink, period, is not for kings. But doesn't the book of Revelation say that we are kings, priests, royalty, a holy priesthood, a set-apart generation? It's not for kings and queens to drink. So maybe for the world or the other Christians, okay, but wait a minute. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. God has made me royalty. I am a holy priesthood. I am with Christ ruling and reigning with the Lord. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are a royal priesthood, a holy people, kings and queens in God. So if Proverbs says it's not for kings and queens, well, I'm a king and queen with Christ. I'm, it's not for me. Proverbs 23, 31. Okay, you're not convinced? It's okay. Let's keep going. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and it goes down smoothly. In the end, look at wine, okay? Some of you are like, it's just wine, brother. Look, 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 look. Proverbs 23, 31. Do not gaze at it when it's red and sparkles in the cup and goes smoothly. In the end, here's what wine does in the end. It bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. What? The Bible says it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Now, for those of you in the chat, Jesus drank wine. The Bible does not say he drank wine. It says he drank with them, but it does not say he drank wine. So go back and look. But it says it, wine bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Relating alcohol to a snake, the snake is a representation of the devil. So I don't want nothing to do that bites like a snake or none of that. Proverbs 20 verse 1, wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Guys, you say, oh, drinking's not a big deal. It's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say we shouldn't drink. I'm reading the Bible word for word here. You guys debate this. Proverbs 23, 21. Look at this. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness clothes one with rags. Heavy drinker, glutton, and drowsiness one with rags. Let me, let me just also say this. Does alcohol and prayer mix? If I'm living a life of consecration and holiness, wanting to live like God, do I drink alcohol and then decide I want to go study the Bible and pray? Of course not. Bible study and drinking don't mix. Prayer and alcohol don't mix. Nobody drinks a white claw and then says, oh, I really feel like praying now. I really feel like fasting. Nobody drinks and says, man, I really want to go read my Bible. Oh, okay, so let me just give you more if you don't think the Bible's good enough. You're like, well, I don't really know. You know, it's, it's, it's ambiguous. No, it's not. Look at this. Alcohol is labeled as a depressant. That's what, they, that's what they label. Alcohol is considered a depressant. Anything that depresses, I want to avoid. Why are you like, well, it's not a big deal. It's a depressant. The culture calls it a depressant. And I know this, whatever I do in moderation, my kids will do in excess. So for you, it might be, let me say that again, because some of you in the back didn't get it. Get it. Whatever I do in moderation, my kids will do in excess. So if I'm drinking one glass of wine, what if my kids drink three glasses of wine, end up drunk and going down the wrong path? Is that the example I want to leave for generations? What do I want to leave? Generational curses or generational blessings? I'm going to give you a bunch of other reasons quickly. I have a whole video on drinking on the channel if you want more verses. Why you shouldn't drink. Are you ready? These are not even biblical. They're just real. Alcohol kills brain cells. Hello. Is there anybody in the chat that can type one? Alcohol 
kills brain cells. Brain cells do not recover. You don't get more brain cells. They're not like red blood cells or white blood cells. Once you lose the brain cells, they don't ever come back. And I'm just going to say this nicely. Some of y'all need all the brain cells you can get. Okay. Some of you are, some of you are struggling for brain cells. You don't need to be drinking and killing your brain cells. Let me give you another reason. Alcohol causes you to act in ways you normally wouldn't. You do things when you drink that you'd never do otherwise. Alcohol is a numbing agent. Alcohol is a factor in 50% of violent crimes. Alcohol is a mind-altering drug. Drinking tells the world Jesus isn't enough. Woo! That's a strong point. Drinking tells the world Jesus isn't enough. I need something else to get high on. I need something else to fill me. And some of you, mm, you say it's not that big of a deal, yet you're mad right now because you drink one glass of wine at dinner. Let's argue this. If drinking's not that big of a deal to you, then why not give up your one glass of wine? Why is it that you get so mad every time somebody talks about drinking if drinking's not that big of a deal? Prove, prove it to me. Prove to me that drinking's not a big deal and give up your wine. Give up your alcohol. Give up your one beer. No, 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 no. Drinking says Jesus isn't enough. Drinking fills your mind with impure thoughts. Let me tell you something right now, coming from someone that drank a lot. I won't say how much, but enough. I was addicted. God delivered me and took the desire from me. Let me tell you something about it. When I drank, I thought impure things. Don't lie. Don't let the devil use you. Don't lie tonight. When I drank, I wanted to do impure things. It led to debauchery. That's what the Bible says. There's so for every argument that justifies a Christian drinking, I can give you a hundred arguments that tell why you shouldn't drink. Some things you just need to say, what's right with it? Because many of you guys, all you care about is what's wrong with it. Well, what's wrong with drinking? What's wrong with doing this? But stop asking what's wrong with something and start asking what's right with something. And I can't find one thing that's right about drinking. There may be one thing you can say that is okay, good about wine. You might say, well, brother, a little bit of wine helps my heart. Well, sister, so does not eating McDonald's every day. But we don't see you doing that, okay? Don't give me the whole, it helps my heart to drink a glass of wine. You know what also helps your heart? Going on a jog once in a while. Eating healthy foods that aren't fried. Not eating so much butter. I mean, there's, I could, do you guys want me to keep naming things? I can name a list of things that can help your heart. You don't need a glass of wine to help your heart. I can name other things. Okay, I, I took way too long on that, and we're just going long here. Ephesians 5, 19 through 24. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, but also Christ is the head of the church and is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be also subject to their own husbands and e- let the wives be their own husbands in everything. So let me look, let me show you what a commentator said. Paul did not convey the idea that the wife is a doormat with no ideas, opinions, or motivations of her own. Paul views women and men as equal in their value and power in Christ. Yet because there can't be two masters within a harmonious home, Paul says the husband is the head of the family. Just as Christians are powerful entities within the body of Christ, Jesus is the head and ultimate power in the church. Submission is lived out as a husband and a wife share their goals and ideas with each other. When a decision must be made, each should give their opinion about the problem or solution after dialogue back and forth. Hopefully they can come to a conclusion, but if not, and a decision can't wait, the husband should make the final decision. 
Another commentator said, instead of taking care of their own faithfulness to their God-given assignment as wives, they take on the self-appointed role of playing the Holy Spirit in their husband's lives. They point out their husband's faults, his shortcomings, and the wives even assume a when-then attitude. They say, when he does this, I'll do that. They postpone obedience as their role as wives as a condition to of their husbands. So what Paul is saying is this. We're going to go very quick, very simple, because I still have a lot to talk about the armor of God and everything else in chapter 6. Here's the very simple thing Paul is saying. When women and men have a issue going on in their marriage, there's a decision that needs to be made. Ultimately, if you can't agree, the wife should submit to her husband. A wife should not submit to her husband if her husband calls upon her to do something that violates scripture or is abusive or physically harms her. Then you don't submit to abuse or sin or him commanding you. But in a godly marriage, don't get mad at me. It's biblical. The husband is the head of the marriage. The husband is the priest of the home. The husband is the leader of the home. Now, some of you don't like it because you're in this feminist feminism culture that says women and men, women could do everything men can do and better and women this and women don't need to have kids and women need to go out and get jobs and be business women and this and this and this. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches men and women are equal, equal, but in a marriage, the man is the head of the house. The woman, the Bible says, is a weaker vessel, not in the sense of unequal, but in the sense of not you know, of not like that leadership role of that commanding voice. Now, of course, if there's no man in the home, then you're the leader of your home. That's obvious. But if there is a healthy marriage, the husband's supposed to make the final decision and women are supposed to submit to their husbands. It's a beautiful thing. And before you get mad, I want to show you the next verse here. This is about direction and decision-making. The head makes directions, makes decisions, okay? Just like Christ is the head of the church. It's the decision-making, Ephesians, okay, so don't get mad, ladies, because I got something for you here. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, okay, so now we've already talked to the ladies. Submit to your husband. Praise the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So this was very anti-cultural and the Roman and the Greek man believed that the woman was the man's property. So in these days, women were men's property. Paul is saying, think about this. Paul is saying, give yourself to your wife. Okay, so in that culture, they thought women were property. And here's what Paul is saying. Give yourself to your wife. In other words, she's not your property, but you are together as one and you're to give yourself to her and now you belong to her, she belongs to you and I'm gonna show you why in a second. There's an equalness. So again, it's not men domineer over women and men are this, but are men the priests of their home? Yes. Are men spiritual leaders? Yes. But remember, the man gives himself to his wife. That's the, that's, and again, none of this is gonna make sense if you're in an unhealthy marriage. Some of you are like, well, I don't like this because your husband's not safe. I'm not, I'm talking about in a Christian healthy marriage, this is God's divine order. There's a thousand other what if, but what about this? There's, if you're not even married and you're getting mad here, you have no room because you're not even married. So remember, this is in the confines of a healthy Christian marriage. Women submit and the men gives himself to his wife and loves her the way Christ loved the church. Very anti-cultural. And then it talks about Christ is washing the church so that he could have a bride bride not brides god is not coming back for 30 different denominations and churches coming back for the bride not the brides ephesians 5 28 through 30. look at this again ladies stay with me 
So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Look at this. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. It is just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. I love how Paul speaks to the pride and the self-centeredness of man. Men are prideful, come on, and self-centered. And Paul goes right to that and says, look at you men. You men love yourself. You nourish yourself. You cherish yourself. You love, you, you're just, you're prideful. That's how men are. They love self. And Paul says, remember, the same way you love yourself, you don't hate yourself, and you nourish your body, you cherish your body, do that to your wife. Love your wife as if it's your own body. There's a lot of men in marriage, and their marriage is out of kilter because the man loves himself more than he loves his wife. And it's all about him. I want to go hang out with my friends. I want to play video games for eight hours a day. I want to make sure this. I want the food clean. I mean, the food cooked. I hope you don't want your, well, I guess you'd want your food clean, clean too. I want the food cooked. I want the house clean. And you think your wife is your maid. I want this and this and this and this. And you want her to do everything for you. And Paul says that same intensity, come on, ladies, that same intensity you have that you love yourself, that you're so full of cherishing and nourishing yourself, Treat your wife that way. Love your wife that way with that intensity that you look out for her and you take care of her and you be there for her that you're not just what's in it for me because men are extremely selfish. You know this, but also let me love my wife. Let me, let me uh, nourish and cherish my wife that same way because you need to remember when you get married, the two become one. Let's look at this. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his wife and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Paul is saying this, when you get married, the two flesh become one, you are united. So have some respect for your wife, and then ladies, submit to your husband. Don't make it hard for him to be the spiritual leader. Hello, can I get an amen? If your husband says, I don't think the kids should do this or watch this or go there or I'm trying to protect them spiritually. Don't fight and argue with him. Just submit to what he's saying. If there's a certain, let me get very, very practical. If there's a certain movie that, that your husband, the priest of the home feels is a bad or is bringing this or that and he's, I don't think we should do it and you go, no, it's fine if they do it. Just submit. Just say, okay, we'll go with what you think. You're the priest of the home. If you want to protect the family, protect the home, I'm going to be, I'm going to submit. Just like, if somebody breaks in at night, okay? Now I know all the feminists are gonna come out getting mad, oh well, clip this and post it on TikTok and call me what you wanna call me. If somebody breaks into your house at night, do you think, and there's a man and a woman in bed and they hear somebody at the door, who gets up and gets to the door? Does the woman get up and go out there with the gun and as the husband is in the room with the kids? Of course not. The man, this is God's divine design. Even if people are feminists, like, no, that's not true. The, my wife would get up. Come on, guys. Let's just, let's all just pretend we're not brainwashed by the media. The man would get up and go see what the noise is. Honey, go figure out what that is. That's always the case. That's God the way. That's, that's what it's about. It's the man being the leader. It's not domineering. It's not domineering. It's not the man being the dominant one and, oh, you need to do what I say. It's a godly loving. The man is the priest of the home and the woman submits to the man, but the man gives himself to the woman. They're both equal. There's no like, I'm greater than you. You're not as good. They're both equal. Remember, Eve came out of Adam's side, not, not Adam's behind. And I don't mean behind like, but I just literally mean 
Eve didn't come out from behind Adam, his backbone. It was his rib. So women side by side with us. But remember, we are to be the priests and the leaders and the women are submit to us the same way the church submits to Christ. All right. Oh, I could see the TikTok clips here. It's okay. Cancel me. I don't care. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his wife and the two become one. Okay, I already said that. Uh, oh, no. Oh, yeah, I said that. So marriage is a prophetic picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Ephesians 5, 33. Nevertheless, and then let's sum it up here. And we're going to go to chapter 6 and give me like 15, 20 Pentecostal minutes and we'll get through this. Uh, chapter 6 is quick anyways. Ephesians 5, 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife, own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul is basically summing or summarizing it in this two simple words. He summarizes all that. And by the way, the guys had more responsibility than the women. So before you get mad, Paul is going on, men do this, men do this, men, you need to do this. But here's the summary, two simple words. Are you ready? Write this down. Two simple words to summarize everything we've talked about. Love and respect, love and respect. Men love your wife, women Respect your husband. Now, this is the first time Paul uses the word respect, but it's very interesting. These are the roles that God has designed. The woman respects, do not disrespect, do not belittle, do not hinder what God's called them to do in your marriage or in your life. And, and men, don't be cold towards your wife. Don't be bitter towards your wife. You guys need to have mutual love. You guys aren't ready for the one where we talk about other stuff in marriage. I'm just warming you guys up here. All right, let's go to Ephesians 6. Whew, I didn't think that was going to take me an hour to get through one chapter. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So Paul spoke to the husband and wives. Now he speaks to the children. And he says, listen, if you want to live a long life, you need to honor. That means love and respect for them. Now, honoring your parents as an adult because when you're an adult, you don't obey them, you honor them. This could be things like listening to them, helping them when they're in need, taking them places they need to go, including them in family activities, helping them financially. These are various ways we could honor our parents. But let me make this clear. Just because you're a grown adult doesn't mean you don't honor your parents. We're still called to honor our parents. Of course, we don't obey them when they call, command us to do something that's sinful. These are all within the confines of God's word. Ephesians 6, 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admission of the Lord. So three things we're supposed to do as fathers with our kids. Bring them up. That means to provide for them physically and spiritually. Train them. That's to disciple them, to discipline them, show them what's right, what's wrong. And then thirdly, admonish them in the Lord. That means to make God the center of the relationship and directing everyone to focus on God as much as possible in your life. So that's the father's job. Father is to... Bring the kid up, train the kid, and admonish them in the Lord. Direct them to God. Direct your family to God. Point them to God. In regards to not provoking your kids, some of you say, what does it mean to not provoke my kid? Here's what a commentator said. I love this. The idea behind the words exasperate your kids or do not provoke or do not embitter them. This complements perfectly the word used in Ephesians 6, 4, translated provoking them to anger. The meaning here is don't anger them or make them angry to, to bring one along to a deep-seated anger. This kind of anger in children springs from continual and habitual unfair treatment. Wouldn't that kind of treatment make you angry? Of course it would. When Paul is saying don't anger them or don't uh, provoke them to anger, he's talking about unfair treatment. He's talking about physical abuse. He's talking about sexual abuse. He's talking about not providing for them, neglecting your kids. Have you ever heard a kid like, I just am angry at my dad. 
right? They're adults now and they're mad at their father because this is what they say. All growing up, I never knew my dad. My dad was never there for me. My dad was always working. My dad was always abusive. My dad was always this. So they were provoked to anger. They're bitter their entire life because of what their dad did. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't provoke them to anger. Don't make them bitter by not being there, providing and supporting them. That's what means to provoke them to anger that comes through abuse and other things. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as man, men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, the good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same reward, the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or he's free. And you masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master in heaven, there's no partiality. Okay. One commentator said this, the Bible did not condone or discourage slavery as it was an acceptable part of life. Even the slave did not question it. And then then he goes on, I won't read the whole thing, to talk about how slavery was part of the Roman life. There was an estimated 60 million slaves. The people of the Roman Empire believed that they were working for their dignity and important duties and positions were filled by slaves, including doctors were slaves, teachers were slaves, and even those working for the empire were slaves. It's obvious, this is what the commentator says, the definition of a slave then was much different than it was today. Okay, so many slaves enjoyed their jobs and enjoyed who their masters were. And he goes on this whole rant and I'll make a whole video on slavery in the Bible. Here's the bottom line. Slavery in the Bible was more employment. When you were employed by a family, say I was a doctor for a family or for a city, I would have a master and I would be considered a slave to that family or to that master. I would be the doctor to the family. I would be considered a slave, but it wasn't a slave of like, oh, I'm a slave. I have to do this. It was a slave of I'm working hard for my employer. Now, some of you are like slavery is wrong and slavery is absolutely wrong. But let me say slavery still exists. Sadly, slavery is alive and well. It's called big corporations. That's what slavery is. Many of you will go to work for 12 hours a day. You have no real life. You have no real passions. You have really nothing outside of work and you work for 12 hours a day. You are a slave to that corporation. Maybe you're a manager. Maybe you have a, maybe you work long 18 hour shifts, 20 hour shifts. That's modern day slavery. That was what slavery was in the Roman government. It was jobs. Okay. There's 60 million slaves. They're working, they'd be considered bond servants or slaves, and they would work a certain amount of times until they would be free from that job and they'd have another job. Again, I'll go into all of this in another video, but that was modern day slavery. The Bible does not condone it or discourage it. It was a part of the day. It was kind of like literally slavery in modern day is working and stuff. It's not the slavery we saw uh, back in the you know, 15, 16, 1700s. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, okay? An hour in and we're barely on the title of the video. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. If you want a breakdown of what every single one of these mean, go to a video on my channel called the, uh, the Structure of Satan's Kingdom, the Ranks of Satan's Demons, the Ranks of Satan's Kingdom. If you search my channel, the Ranks of Satan's Kingdom, you'll find a video where I break down what every single one of these are. Now, the Living Bible says it like this. We are not fighting against people without with bodies, but against persons without bodies. 
This is what demons are, okay? So we are fighting, we're in a cosmic wrestling match against real demonic spirits. These are real persons that have no bodies. So real beings with no physical bodies that wanna still kill and destroy. The entire idea of a demon is a great mystery. The idea that a demon could embed itself into a person and live on the inside of a person is a great mystery. Nobody fully understands it. Nobody but God fully comprehends it, but it's a real thing. We can't just avoid demons. We can't just avoid spiritual warfare. The Bible says here that this is what we are fighting. When you're going against an argument with your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife, and you're debating or arguing something, or there's a stronghold there, you're not fighting against them. You're fighting against a spirit thing. There's spiritual principles at place. There are real personalities. So I like I liked the living Bible the way it says it because demons are personalities. Like think of demons as real people that just don't have physical bodies, but they have spirit bodies. So we're not wrestling flesh and blood, but against principalities, okay? I have all this on the channel. I have 80 plus deliverance training. If you don't know, I have over 80 hours of casting out demons training on the channel. It's a playlist called deliverance training. You can go binge watch all of that. It's, it's all there. Just know that you are in a cosmic wrestling match. Last week, I talked about principalities. You can go look who are the principalities. It's on my channel just from two, three days ago. There's powers. That showing us the devil has real power. He doesn't have all power, but the devil has real power. Rulers of darkness, this is the idea that the devil and demons love to rule and dominate people. The devil is a control freak. He wants to control you. He wants to rule you. He wants to dominate you and dominate cities and dominate ideas and dominate media and dominate culture. He's a control freak. He wants to rule things, okay? Spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That is the idea that there are demons, devils ruling in the second heaven. If you don't know, now you know demons are not in hell. They're not ruling from hell. The devil's not in hell. Hell is the devil's final destination, not the devil's address. So he's not in hell with the pitchfork right now burning people. Hell was made by God and the devil will be thrown there according to Revelation. But right now the devil is working in the air, the Bible says. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's ruling in the second heaven with his demons. So they rule in heavenly realms. The demons rule in spiritual places. So let's look at some of Satan's actions. We're going to go through this quick. Some of the ways the devil functions and the way the demons function. Mark 4.15. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear the word, Satan comes immediately and takes the word that was sown in their hearts. So the devil wants to undo God's word, undo God's work. As I'm preaching, the devil, this is one of the ways that these powers work. The devil comes and steals the word according to Mark and also Luke talks about that. Job 2, 4 through 5. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that man has, he will give to it for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. Okay, so Satan also, according to Job 2, he tries to get men to turn from God. Daily, the devil is working through his demons to get you to turn away from God and to do things that are contrary to the word of God. That's Job 2, 4 through 5. I'm giving you straight scripture here. This is not any philosophy, any ideas I've made up, straight Bible only. John 13, 2. And supper ended, and the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Okay, so the devil also creates division, creates havoc, and creates evil in men's heart. Luke 4, 6 through 7. And the devil said, all this authority I'll give you and for you and for their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, 
If you worship before me, it will be yours. Okay, so we know that the devil wants people to worship him instead of worship God. Are you guys getting what everything in media tells us to do? Everything in culture is telling us to do all these things because the devil's the one running culture. The devil's the God of this world. So it gets people worship man, worship Satan, worship a false God, an idol, the occult, instead of worshiping God. Revelation 12, 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So the devil uses deception as his primary tool. He can't defeat you with power, so he has to deceive you. Revelation 12, 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before the God day and night has been cast down. The devil is the accuser. He's the one that condemns people before God. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks like a roaring lion seeking who he may, to devour, who he may devour. The devil looks to devour people. That's what these demons do. They're looking for someone to devour. The devil's hungry and he eats people. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Satan disguises himself as someone good. The devil comes as an angel of light. It's not that big of a deal. That's what the devil says. The music, the movies, the culture, the personality, the sin. It's not a big deal, brother. Relax. Don't be so harsh. Don't be one of those holiness preachers. This is the devil. He comes as someone good, as an angel of light. Genesis 3, the devil comes to cause us to question and cast doubt on God's methods and God, God's motives. Matthew 4, 6, the devil misuses scripture. Yes, the devil uses scripture and perverts it and brings it out of context. 2 Corinthians 2, 11, lest Satan should take advantage over you, do not be ignorant of his devices. The devil has schemes and devices. So the devil, he's out there. He's doing all these biblical things I gave you. What is our protection against him? This is what Paul says. Are you ready? Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Notice Paul says, here's your calling. Stand your ground. An army is advancing towards us. And Paul says, here's what you're going to do. Stand. During the day of evil, everything the devil is throwing at the church right now. If we have armor, we can stand. Spiritual warfare is about standing your ground. No surrender. No retreat. No rearview mirror. No going back. No backing down. No getting quiet. No slowing up. No being calm. No fear here. There's no mercy on Satan's kingdom. We stand. We fight and we overcome. This is our calling, and this is our assignment. I feel like we're about to go to battle right now, y'all. That was like a battle speech there. We stand, we fight, we overcome. We must put on the full armor of God. Not a piece of the armor, not one part of the armor. Put on the full armor of God. You will not stand without the full armor of God. You won't survive. The calling is to stand. After everything the devil throws out, guess what? 12 years later, still standing. After all that you've been through, Look at you right now, still standing. Didn't know you could make it. Everyone said you were going to quit. Everybody said you'll go back to drinking. You'll go back to drugs. You're just on a spiritual high. Look at you now, still standing. Three years later, seven years later, 
10 years later, the first week of your salvation, that devil came to try to steal the word and you didn't think you'd stand, but you got the revelation that the armor of God gives you the power, the full armor. Just like a police officer has a uniform. Just like a firefighter has a uniform. Just like a NASCAR driver has a uniform. Just like a doctor has a uniform. We have a uniform. Friends and family, we have a uniform. It's called the armor of God. We've been given a defensive tools to wear to protect, protect ourselves from the day of evil. So here we go. Ephesians 6, 14 through 18. Type one if I could have five more Pentecostal minutes. Stand, therefore. Okay, so what are we going to do? Still standing. Should have killed me when you had the chance. Still standing. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having showed your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Okay, so put on the full armor of God. We're going to go through real quick the seven pieces of the armor. And I want you to pay special attention to all of these pieces because they're very, very important. Um, these are the only way you're going to fight the spiritual battle. We are in a wrestling match. Okay, not flesh and blood, spiritual wrestling match, and we need the armor of God. I will give you my practical way. I pray the armor of God on every day, every morning, every night, every time I'm going to go in deliverance. You should know all the pieces. I simply pray, Lord, I pray right now. This is what I pray. Very practical. Lord, I pray right now for the helmet of salvation. Lord, I pray right now the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace. I put on the shield of faith. I put on the helmet of salvation. I take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I pray in the spirit constantly. It's a very simple prayer. I pray that every day. Do you have to be religious? Of course not. Do you have to every morning, every night? You don't have to, but I'm at battle y'all. I wouldn't go out of the house without clothes on. So why would I go and get up without the armor of God? We need the armor of God to survive the battle we're in. You are all in a battle. I know you don't think that. I know you, you can't see it with your eyes. So it's not a big deal to you. You are in a real battle. You are in a real wrestling match every day. Memorize this. Pray this. Put it on. You're at war right now. You need to put the armor of God so that you can stand firm. Don't put pieces on. Some of you have the helmet on, but no breastplate. Some of you have the sword and you're out there swinging, but you have no shield. Some of you have shoes, but no belt. Put on the full armor of God. Remember, in the last days, people only want partial teaching. But we need full teaching. We need the full armor of God. So the first he says is put on the belt of truth. The belt was which holds all the other armor together. Friend, the truth of God's word holds everything in our life together. And if you don't know the truth, the devil will win. If you don't know the truth, remember when the devil fought Jesus, how is the devil, think about how the devil's going to fight Jesus, right? He's at war with Jesus. How's he going to fight with, he uses scripture, but he's using scripture out of context. Scripture out of context is not truth. The Bible says the spirit will lead us into all truth. So Jesus used scripture in context to fight the devil. So you need to know not just the Bible, but you need to know the truth. The truth will set you free. Demons will oftentimes challenge the truth. When you're doing deliverance, the demons will say, are you sure that's true? Are you sure God said that? And demons will come and whisper this to you. Are you sure God wants to bless you? Are you sure that this is real? How many of you, when you first got saved, heard the demons of your past over and over telling you, this isn't real. This is all fake. God's not real. You didn't really encounter him. You didn't have that dream. That was just some bad lunch meat. 
You didn't have that vision. God didn't really change you. You're never going to change. You're always going to be addicted. You're always going to be there. Your mom was like that. Your dad, that's the voice of the devil. He comes and manipulates and challenges the truth of God's word. So you need the belt of truth. Don't believe the lies. Now, what is true and truth are two different things. It might be true that you're sick in your body right now. It might be true that you're born with it, but the truth is by his stripes, you are healed. It might be true right now that you're addicted to drugs right now. It's true. You're addicted to drugs, but the truth is that the anointing breaks the yoke of bondage. It might be true that you're on the verge of divorce, but the truth is that God can heal your marriage in one second. It might be true that you've been struggling for years, but the truth is God can heal, deliver, and restore you right now instantly. So don't trade what is true for the truth of God's word. True and truth are two different things, and we stand on, this is some good stuff tonight, y'all. The word of God is true. That's the truth we stand on. Then the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was used to protect vital organs from fatal blows. The righteousness of Christ protects us against the accusations of the enemy, which would doom us to hell. The devil says they're this, they were addicted to porn, they committed every sin, they're liars, they're blasphemers, and Christ puts his righteousness on us so that we can be in right standing with God and what would have defeated us without that breastplate of righteousness being in right standing, we would have been defeated against the accusations of the enemy. So what does the breastplate do? The righteousness of Christ protects us from the accusations of the enemy. And if you're not walking in righteousness, you're going to fall at any moment because the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Every time he tries to accuse you, God says, I already put that on the cross. You accuse him of this, I've already put that on the cross. You accuse him of this, I've already put that on the cross. It's been washed, it's been cleansed, and God has imputed his righteousness onto us. Praise the Lord. The breastplate of righteousness protects the heart from growing cold. Amen. The shoes of peace, which come from the good news to be full, fully prepared. Now, back in those days, they would lay down traps and snares for the soldiers. So essentially... You would have to have something protecting you and guarding you from these snares. And if you stepped on these sharp objects they would put out and hide, and these were like landmines back in those days, then you'd no longer be able to keep walking if your feet got caught up from these sharp objects. So the peace of God, which is the shoes of peace, give us the ability to keep walking through rough things or sharp situations. Someone in the marriage, maybe you're going through a rocky, rough situation. You need the shoes of peace. Somebody in your body, you need peace. Somebody in your mind, you need peace. Somebody's situation needs peace. You're going to make it. Put on peace, the Bible says. The peace of God protects us when we're tired, when we're weary. Friend, Jesus has won the battle. Take that peace. Take that shoes of peace and keep marching, soldier. I know you're tired. I know you feel like the enemy's winning. I know you feel like there's no hope, but keep marching. You have the victory in Jesus' name. The devil will not have the last word. Above all, he says, take on the shield of faith to stop the fiery darts of the enemy. The shield of faith being the most significant defensive piece of the armor, the faith of God keeps you going. It's used to protect you in any direction. Our faith prevents the enemy from being able to hit us with his fiery darts. Now, the fiery darts allude to poisoned arrows which inflame a wound on you. He shoots temptation at us. And if we give into that fiery dart, it grows like fire or poison. So my faith protects me from the darts of temptation. My faith protects me from the darts of deception. My faith protects me from the darts of confusion or anxiety. Faith is not abstract. 
invisible, it's tangible. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. It's not mystical, it's real. You can grab it, it's real. And my, your testimony and my testimony is evidence that faith is real. That's why the Bible said Jesus sing their faith. How do you see faith? Because it, it's action. Faith without works is dead. So our faith puts action in our life. We have action. We actually walk this thing out. We actually do this thing. It's real. So those days it was four foot long and half a foot wide made of pure wood covered in linen leather, which absorbed fiery or poison darts that were shot. And God is saying to you tonight, don't lower your shield. I know you're tired of holding up faith. Faith is heavy sometimes. The shield of faith is not a light thing to carry. It's a heavy shield to carry. It's a heavy, it's a heavy burden to walk in. But God is saying, don't get tired. Don't let your faith go down. Don't let your shield go down. The moment you lower your faith, the enemy hits you with the fiery darts. And the devil's always throwing fiery darts at us. If you don't think that Christians get attacked or the enemy comes at us, trust me, the devil's always launching fiery darts. Helmet of salvation. This is the protection of your thought life, protects your mind. Remember, salvation means healing and deliverance. It's supernatural. So for some of you tonight, God wants to heal you, deliver you in your mind, restore your thought life, wash your thoughts. Some of you, the biggest battlefield is just right here. Just a few inches. This is the battlefield in the mind. The strongholds the devil builds in our mind. God is demolishing them tonight. God is delivering you tonight. So a man thinks, the Bible says, so he is. Let that helmet of salvation change your thought life, protect your thoughts. The devil oftentimes, demons oftentimes try to enter through thoughts. Before there's an action, there's a thought. So don't let those, action, those thoughts fester. Pull those thoughts down. Okay, then you have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the only offensive weapon in the armor of God. This is how, excuse me, we break the powers of the devil. We fight the devil with the Bible. The sword of the spirit is wielded by our words. Words have the power to break things. And so how do we take up the sword of the spirit? In a practical way, we speak the word of God. As I speak the word of God, remember the Bible says out of Jesus' mouth, a, sh a, sharp, a sharp sword comes. It's out of our mouth with words that we fight the enemy. This is how Jesus fought the devil. Jesus fought the devil, not with a thousand angels. He spoke the word of God and said, type it in the chat, it is written. So how, how are you going to fight the devil if you don't know what's written? Some of you don't spend any time in the word of God and you can't fight with the weapon that's unfamiliar to you. The only way to fight demonic powers is with the word of God. You speak the word of God. You declare the word of God. Someone said demons can't know your thoughts. They can't know your thoughts. Of course not. Demons can't know what you're thinking unless they're living in you. If a demon is living in you, it can know your thoughts. If a demon is not living in you, your thoughts go into actions and the action opens the door for the demons. Let me make sure that's very clear there. You need the sword of the spirit. And then lastly, we miss this one. Pray in the spirit always in every occasion. So do I just pray at prayer meetings? No. Do I just pray, you know, once in a while? No. How often should I pray? Always. We treat prayer like breathing. You don't have to remember to breathe. We shouldn't have to remember to pray. This will happen as you develop a prayer life. As I pray in the spirit always, I'm declaring the word of God. I'm speaking the word of God. Prayer, prayer, prayer. This is what we need. And this is how we walk in praying in the spirit always. Let's, let's close our finale, our last verses here. And then we're going to pray for you guys. We're going to pray the armor of God. We're going to pray deliverance. We're going to break the back of the enemy tonight. Ephesians 6, 18 through 24. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful. Look at this. I want you guys to notice what it says here. Look at 
being watchful, excuse me, to, to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make things known to you whom I sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to you, brethren, the love and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Paul ends with, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. This is our assignment. This is our calling. I'm going to get some confetti for the end of the book of Ephesians. There we go. Celebrate. That was the finale of the book of Ephesians. That was like what? A little bit over a month that we did the book of Ephesians. We are done with the book of Ephesians. Praise the Lord. I hope you've enjoyed it. Let us pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring breakthrough in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, right now that we would put on the full armor of God to fight against the plans and the strategies of the enemy. Father, tonight we put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of faith, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the shoes of peace. Right now, Father, the sword of the Spirit. Father, we take up the armor of God to fight against the plans and the strategies of the enemy. Satan, you have no power. You have lost this battle. We wrestle against you tonight in Jesus' name. Some of you maybe need to wrestle with a stubborn demon you're fighting. Maybe you need to wrestle with an unclean spirit that you've been battling. We come against you now in Jesus' name. You have no authority. You have no power. I commend every foul spirit come up and out in Jesus' name. We come against you now. Every power, every spirit, every ruler of darkness, the Lord rebukes you in Jesus' name. We pray the delivering power of God. Father, help us. As you said, not to walk in drunkenness, uncleanliness, fornication. Lord, right now we pray that we would no longer be filled with wine, but we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and power. Fill us with the Holy Ghost and power. Fill us with the fire of the Holy Spirit right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, God, we don't want to be children of darkness. We want to be children of light. Help us to walk in the light. Help us to walk with divine purpose, divine direction. In Jesus' name, we just pray power of the Holy Spirit. We pray anointing of the Holy Spirit. We pray fire of the Holy Spirit right now. Lord, touch every life here. Touch every person watching. I pray healing over bodies right now. We command sickness go, cancer go, diabetes go, heart disease go, lung disease go, blood disease go now in Jesus' name. Right now, nerve damage, ligaments, tendons. I pray by the power of the Holy Ghost, be healed now in Jesus' name. Be healed now in Jesus' mighty name. Father, right now, I pray, bring healing and restoration. Bring healing and restoration by your spirit, by your power. God, do what only you can do. Your delivering power, your healing power, your fire, your anointing, release it right now. Satan, get your hands off of the people of God. It is written, come on, it is written, declare the word of God. It is written that you will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. Lord, we need your power tonight. We need your power to walk in the assignment you've called us to walk in. God, we can't do it without your anointing. We can't do it without your power. Release your power in Jesus' name. Power of God, fire of God, anointing of the Holy Spirit be released right now in Jesus' name. God, do what only you can do. We receive your anointing. Some of you want to be baptized right now. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Hunger for the Holy Spirit. Thirst for the Holy Spirit. God, we want your spirit. We want your power. We want your anointing right now in Jesus' name. 
in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Some of you are getting delivered right now. Every unclean spirit, go now in Jesus' name. We renounce you now. Some of you need to renounce these things. The Bible says to renounce all works of wickedness. We renounce you, Satan. We renounce every work of wickedness, every unclean thing in our life. We renounce it now. Every spirit we renounce in Jesus' name. You have no power. Get out now in Jesus' name. Get out now. We evict every unclean spirit right now. By the power of the Holy Ghost, we evict you. Up and out in Jesus' name. You must go in Jesus' name. You must go in Jesus' name. Satan, you are a liar. We command you out in Jesus' name. The blood is against you, Satan. The Lord rebukes you, Satan. You must go now. Every foul spirit, every unclean power, go now in Jesus' name. Go now in Jesus' name. The blood is against you. We pray, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Holy Ghost, do what only you can do. Let your anointing flow. Let your power flow. Let your fire flow in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for every person watching. Thank you, Lord, for breakthrough. Some of you are manifesting a demon right now. We command it out in Jesus' name. Out in Jesus' name. Come out of them right now. Maybe your children need deliverance. Every foul spirit must go now in Jesus' name. Every foul spirit must go now in Jesus' name. The Lord rebukes you, Satan. You've lost this battle. Every unclean spirit, up and out now. Every foul demon, up and out now in Jesus' name. You've lost. You've lost. Come out. Come out in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, have your way. Release your anointing right now, Jesus. We need you, Lord. We need your fire. We need your power. Do what only you can do, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for healing bodies, Father. Thank you for delivering setting the captives free thank you lord for setting a fire come on pray ask the lord to set a fire in your home lord light our houses on fire for your glory and your namesake let our children be on fire for you let them walk in your your power in the spirit's power in the spirit's anointing thank you lord do what only you can do every spirit go now in jesus name every spirit go now satan you've been defeated we come against you now in jesus name Every spirit, go now in Jesus' name. Go now. The blood is against you. The blood is against you. We bind the spirit of anger. We bind the spirit of lust. We bind the spirit of bitterness. Every religious spirit, we command you up and out in Jesus' name. Up and out in Jesus' name. Every foul spirit must go now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Have your way, Father. Have your way. Let your anointing flow right now, Father. Let your fire flow right now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Keep on praying, guys. Keep letting the Lord move. I want to open this up because this does take a while. If you want to give, you can. We're going to stay on for a little bit longer here. Read the donations. Read the chat. If you want to give, you can. If you're listening on audio, isaiahsaldivar.com slash partner. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.